Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start, this is basically our first um, substantial sermon, I guess, in the, in the book of James. We're going to start this sermon series through James, and we'll just go for probably about eight or ten weeks, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through James, and take a look at some pretty hard passages in the New Testament. And, and this is, it begins right off the bat to be a, just a difficult passage, a difficult thing to live out in the Christian walk, in our Christian lives. Are you guys familiar with the Babylon Bee? So you guys know, you see their satirical humor online and all this other stuff. So Babylon B is pretty priceless, and it, it, sometimes it stings a little bit more than it probably should in the process of, uh, of extending some humor to us as Christians. They wrote a book called How to Be a Perfect Christian. You guys caught this at all? I'm just gonna share a few lines. If you're wondering how to be a perfect Christian, Probably go ahead and get that book, and I'm just gonna, gonna share a few thoughts with you. First, how to be a perfect Christian. Find a church that is super convenient to drive to is step number one, and here's what they say. Hop into the family minivan, cruise on by your potentially new Sunday gathering place. If the commute takes more than three minutes, abort the mission. Church commutes of five, 10, or 15 or more minutes are not convenient. And we've already established, for perfect Christians, convenience is what it's all about. On joining the right church, okay, so you guys, you're good to, to know that this is like just fake humor, right, okay? On joining the right church, if you've ever felt a modicum of displeasure at your church, even if it's just for a fleeting second, get out of there immediately and find a new one. That's a quote that they attributed to C.S. Lewis, never really... S- Never really said that. It's good, it's good, it's good humor. On attaining perfection as a Christian, conforming to the status quo is the goal, living out your faith in the way that cultural Christianity dictates is the only way you'll truly be satisfied in your Christian walk. And I, and I love this statement, this is the last one that I'll share with you. You wanna be a perfect Christian? And that is a good and noble goal indeed. But the first thing's first. It's impossible to get the maximum level of holiness if you're currently attending a church that's focused on the wrong things, namely anything but you. All right, so we're gonna, we're gonna focus on Christ as a good Christian. The, uh, the longer I walk in the Christian life, I've been saved for nearly 20 years, a little over 20 years, the more I come to this realization Christianity is a long and arduous, sometimes painful process of getting over myself. Just real clear and direct this morning as we look at James chapter one. If you're going to be an authentic Christian, it's a very painful step-by-step process of getting over yourself, learning to put yourself to the side, your preferences, your desires, your conveniences even. And James, miraculously, what he does is he takes three things in chapter one to help us get over ourselves as Christians and to put the center where it needs to be, which is on Christ and on his word. Um, I wanna share a few quotes with you from some of my favorite theologians. This is from John MacArthur. He says, the true gospel is a call to self-denial, not a call to self-fulfillment. Here's the the real C.S. Lewis. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him, Christ, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way. You'll never glory in God until God has killed your glory in self. I love what Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. A.W. Tozer, Put it this way, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress in the Christian life, because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. 
over and over in the Bible and over and over again in the New Testament, whether it's Jesus, Paul, or even James here, what you're gonna hear is a regular refrain, a regular repeated pattern of, this is not about you. This is Christianity and it's about Christ. It's about his will, his ways, and his word, not our preferences, conveniences, and comforts. And so this morning as we go through the book of James, what I wanna tell us all is to just, hey, this is, a, this is a journey about getting over yourself. And God uses three things in particular to help us do that. In James chapter one, we're gonna read about trials, wisdom, and desires. And these three things God uses for one divine purpose, to help us get over ourselves. To the strong in the church, he gives us trials so that we will realize that apart from God, we are all very weak indeed. To the wise, you will lack wisdom in life. It's not a question of if it will happen, the question is when it happens. Because apart from Christ, all of us are desperately and, and hopelessly foolish in our sin. To the pious, even you have evil desires. Even you want things that God says you shouldn't want. And so what do we do with those evil desires? James 1 asks us to take a good look in the mirror. And if we see somebody that is strong, wise, and important in ourselves, we look again until we see nothing of ourselves and we see more of Christ. The whole purpose of this chapter is to see more of Christ and less of you, just like John told us. Uh, number one in your outline, number one this morning, trials are a test. Face them joyfully. Trials are a test. We are called to face them joyfully. Look down at your text, James 1, verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James understands that this world is a very fallen place. It's sinful. Things happen that are outside of what we want and what's good for us, ultimately. And things are, are going to take place. We're going to experience trouble, troubles, hardship, and suffering on a daily basis. Christians, like every other person, we face suffering, hardship, and trials. But Christians, unlike every other person, should face them differently than the rest of the world faces them. Remember, unbelievers don't read their Bibles. They read Christians. The question is, what do they read when they see a Christian life? This is, this is really a silly illustration, but I want to give it anyway. If you are going to take an orange and you squeeze an orange, if you squeeze it hard enough, if you press against it tight enough, what comes out of that orange should, in fact, be, if it's an orange, orange juice. Right? If you took a lemon if you squeezed it and you pressed hard enough against it, if it is in fact a lemon, what should come out at that point is lemon juice. Why? Because God created it as an orange or a lemon. And it's being natural to how God had created it to its very nature and its core. So what happens when the world and when trials press down and squeeze against Christians? If they are true Christians, naturally Christ should come out. But often what happens is everything else and how the world responds to trials comes out instead. James is like a really good detective. He's like a reporter here. He's gonna tell us a few things about trials. He's gonna tell us what, why, and how. What, why, and how concerning trials in the Christian life. And number one is this. What does an authentic Christian do in the midst of a trial? James 1 verse 2 says this, consider or count it all joy. Now this is the very first imperative, it's the first command in the entire book. And to consider or to count something, it's not a verb of the emotions, it's a verb of the mind. So what James wants us to do is he, he tells us that before we jump to our feelings, we should be considerate of our thinking. 
But this verse has been highly, highly abused by Christians. James does not say, count everything joy in the Christian life. He says, when you encounter trials, consider it pure joy. All here, or, or pure, is an adjective that describes joy. It doesn't describe all of life. What does an authentic Christian do in the midst of a trial? We shouldn't be joyful to be around it or to run away from it, but we should find joy as we go through the trials in life. What do we do in a trial? You think before you feel. You find joy in the journey of a trial, knowing that God is going to use it for a purpose. That's the what during a trial, but why? Why does God allow us to go through these difficult times in life? Why should we be joyful as Christians when we experience trials? Because, look down at verse three, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now your translation might say a few different things there. It could say perseverance, it could say patience, it might even have endurance in your text. The word for, for steadfastness or endurance or patience in this text it's, it really teaches in and of itself. It's a compound word in Greek. The, re, the root word is meno, and that means to remain, to remain in the vine, in the branches, remain in God, but there's an added prefix to it. There's a, it's a hupo. Hupo meno is how you would pronounce this. What that means, steadfastness or endurance, literally means to remain under the trial, to stay under the trial, to live under the trial. Literally, let remaining under this trial have its full effect in your heart and in your life. One commentator puts it this way, he calls it militant patience with God through the midst of trials. Another commentator says that this is faith at its stretching point. And I love this because this is not a, a passive virtue to remain steadfast under a trial. Now, one writer says that this steadfastness is not a passive virtue but a steady clinging to the truth within any given situation in life. Christians should be joyful in trials because God is growing our patience. He's developing our perseverance. He's making us stronger through it. We don't try to go around it, we go through it with perseverance, patience, and steadfastness. That's the what and the why. What about the how? For James, uh, perseverance, steadfastness, it's not the ultimate goal. James has something much deeper in mind as he opens this letter to Christians living in a fallen world. He wants authentic Christians in pursuit of wholeness or completeness. Look down again at verse four. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now these are words that describe what a Christian should become. One day, when we're with Jesus in glory, we will all be perfect and we will all be complete. That means that maturity in the Christian life is a process. It doesn't happen automatically, it doesn't happen all at once. Step by step, day by day, we are in the process of becoming perfect. We are in the process of becoming more complete. As authentic Christians, we are in the process of being emptied of ourselves. As we walk with the Lord, thinking about Christ instead of us. What's one of the best indicators of an authentic Christian? James says this at the beginning. Do you run from trials or do you go through them with patience? Do you center on how you're feeling or do you change your thinking? In the midst of a trial, is your joy elevated or is it eradicated? Remember, the journey of authentic faith is a process of emptying of yourself. Trials are a test. James tells us to face them joyfully. Number two, wisdom is needed. Seek it diligently. Trials are a test. Face them joyfully. Number two, wisdom is needed. 
Seek it diligently. Look down at verse five, I'm gonna read through verse 12 here. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I love that any of you, even the, the most wise among you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, and that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower fails, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And verse 12 is a, a kind of an inclusio, a bookend here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life with which God has promised to those who love him. Y'all remember the time in life when all of us knew everything that there was ever to know? Are any of you guys like me when you were a teenager and nobody could tell you anything because you had everything figured out for yourself? Do somebody do like this or do like this? If I'm the only one, you can just tell me that I'm the only one and it's a, I'll be okay with it. I'll get over it because I'm working on getting over myself, all right? As a teenager, I knew everything and anything. I didn't ask any questions to anybody because I didn't need their answers. I had all the answers. I never really stopped and, and truly just developed the art of listening. Actually, it, when Brandy came into my life, God brought a, a very good gift. She gave me, God gave me the gift of an incredible listener through Brandy. She's taught me so much about just what it means to listen, to seek counsel, and to ask for advice. As a teenager, that wasn't me. So Joe's here up on the front, front row. When you're sitting in the front row, you get to use sermon illustrations. Uh, ever pull any wisdom teeth? A few of them? You guys have your wisdom teeth pulled out? By Joe? Oh my goodness, Kyle had his, you took all of his wisdom teeth right out of his mouth. Um, so when I was like a sophomore in high school, I got my wisdom teeth pulled. And Doc says to me, he says, Jared, here's what I want you to do. You're gonna come in Friday morning, you're gonna miss one day of school. You're gonna go home, you're gonna rest the rest of the day Friday, you're gonna rest all day Saturday and all day Sunday. You're gonna go to class on Monday, I'll give you some painkillers, you'll be fine by Tuesday, the next week. And I probably heard, Jared, you're gonna be fine by Tuesday next week, but I didn't hear most of the first part of that to rest. Nor did I hear his other counsel, which was simply this, do not spit, because if you do, you'll get dry sockets. Immediately when you pull these teeth, do not eat anything that's gonna cause you to chew a lot. Just keep it to the jellos, the ice creams, the puddings, that kind of stuff. Like, whatever, Doc, you don't know what you're talking about. So, I went to the varsity football game that night, Friday, Friday night football game, after I got my wisdom teeth pulled. Just watched the whole game, spitting the whole time under the bleachers. Ate three hot dogs, <laughs> went home that, that weekend, ate chips, just did whatever it was, no big deal. Wisdom teeth pulled, I don't know what everybody's all in a fuss about, this is absolutely a walk in the park. Go back to the, to the dentist, the guy that pulled them the next day, and a week later, hey, you've got dry sockets. And so every week for the next eight weeks, he had to put bandages inside the sockets where they pulled my teeth out and swap them out with this antiseptic. It was, it was terrible. It was the worst thing. It's one of the reasons why I don't go to the dentist. Sorry, Joe. Uh, right now I need to do that, and Brandy's telling me to go see the dentist. Um, yeah, okay, this is, this is good. This is good. We're in, we're in the same boat together. Um, one of, the, one of the wisest people I've ever met, his name is Butch Simmons. He's my discipler at Mississippi State University. Um, just survived a, a little heart attack, actually, a little stroke. He's still doing pretty good. And the thing that has attracted to me, me to him more than anything else 
is that he is such a godly listener. I, I call Butch at least twice a month for advice in ministry, um, just like Scott Susong, just like uh, Brad McCoy here and other pastors, and I talk to him. And every time I ask him a question, hey, Butch, give me some, give me, give me some of your thoughts on men's ministry. I'm just, here's what's going on at TBC, what would you do here, how would you approach this situation? The first thing he always does, he says, Jared, let me start and ask you some questions. Tell me about your guys. Tell me about what's going on there right now. Tell me about who the influential disciples are in that church. What are they doing? Who are they meeting with? Tell me about your small groups. Are they meeting together? Do you have guys leading those that are doing a really good job in it? Are people in the scriptures learning how to study the scriptures for themselves? Tell me about how your church is with the gospel. And he just keeps asking question after question after question. Why? Because he's seeking wisdom. He's listening. Whenever I go to Butch and I ask him a question, he doesn't tell me, here's what you need to do, here's the answer, now go do it. He listens. He asks questions, really good and thoughtful questions. Because he himself is pursuing wisdom. He himself is in this process of discipleship. When you first read verse five, I want you to look back at verse five. If any of you, and it, all of these words are so important, just at the beginning. If any of you, now that if is a first class conditional sentence clause in the Greek. What that means is, we would read it this way, if and it's true that any of you lack wisdom or when any of you lack wisdom, ask of God and he will give it. James is focusing our attention on Old Testament wisdom literature here. Whenever you read James, you should be hearing Proverbs coming into your ears, page by page, verse by verse. There's wisdom literature throughout James. And Proverbs tells us a lot about wisdom. Listen to a couple of these verses. Proverbs 4, verse 7. Above all and before all, do this, get wisdom. Proverbs 4, verse 5, just two verses before that. Sell everything you have and buy wisdom. Wisdom is so important to us, and it is so important for living successfully in this world that we should sell everything we have in order to acquire it. Nothing we have is as valuable as having wisdom and understanding Proverbs chapter two tells us to seek after wisdom like we are seeking after a hidden treasure or a precious jewel. Why? What is wisdom? Wisdom is the, uh, the ability to perceive the true nature of a situation and apply the will of God to it. Wisdom is the ability of us to perceive the true nature of any given situation and apply the will of God to it, and there's, three, there's always three parts to wisdom. In order to have biblical wisdom, you must have knowledge, understanding, and righteousness. You must have knowledge, understanding, and righteousness if you are going to attain wisdom. That means this. You can know the right thing to do, you can even counsel somebody to do the right thing, but you don't have wisdom until you put it into practice yourself. Until you yourself are walking in righteousness, you do not have wisdom, Proverbs says. It's not just knowledge, it's not just intellect. Wisdom encompasses understanding. It's putting those things into practice that you know to be true. Wisdom in Proverbs is, is often personified as a woman always being contrasted with woman folly. The reason it's personified as a, as a person is because wisdom is perfectly embodied in a person, in Jesus. So when you see Jesus, when you listen to Jesus, you are listening, you are seeing wisdom in action. Jesus says things like, you cannot serve two masters. If you're going to be wise, you stay away from woman folly, and you pursue allegiance to woman wisdom instead. What is the beginning of wisdom? 
Proverbs 1, verse 6, to fear the Lord. Have a personal relationship with the Lord through wisdom. Your soul can't be divided between wisdom from the world and wisdom from God. That is a a two-souled person. Literally, when you skip down to verse 8, right? You believe this in faith that God is going to give you wisdom and do not doubt it. If you do doubt it, verse 8, you are a double-minded person. You are unstable in all your ways. A divided soul is the one mark of a divided soul, is its consistency in being inconsistent. It renders one useless for the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says things like, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll serve the one and love the other. ESV says, if you ask God for wisdom, he will give it generously. Now, there's two ways that you can take that word. Generously can mean uh, focusing on the gift, a giver. If you have a a generous gift from somebody, you're just lavishing this idea of of the giver benevolently giving to you generously or, or abundantly. It could also mean singly or straightforwardly that God will give wisdom straightforward a single-minded wisdom to you. It's drastically contrasted with the double-minded man, literally the double-souled man. Or in the Old Testament, you'll read a lot about a double-hearted man. And so James continually takes us back to the Proverbs, to wisdom literature, but he also takes us back to the heart of the Israel faith, back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. When you go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it'll say something like this. You shall love the Lord your God with half your heart, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. James chapter 1 is is beckoning us to have a single-hearted, single focus, a single-minded walk with the Lord that we are going to choose his wisdom, not ours. We are going to walk in his ways, not the world's ways. That we're going to pursue Jesus above anything else in a love relationship with him. And so, here's what we do. When you don't have wisdom, you ask in faith without doubting. Faith here is, it's not the initial faith of becoming a believer. Faith here is, the continuing confidence in the identity and the nature of God that he has given to you through a personal relationship with Christ. The continuing confidence in the identity and the nature of God that he has given to you through a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. We good still? Authentic Christians? Authentic Christians face trials joyfully. Authentic Christians seek wisdom diligently. Thirdly, desires are deadly. Resist them constantly. Desires are deadly. Resist them constantly. Look down at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Now, uh, you can read that in three different ways. You could say God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted to do evil, or God cannot be tempted by an evil person. Um, I think the the best translation is God cannot be tempted to do evil, because this passage is going to go on to say that he does everything for our good instead, not for evil purposes. And he himself tempts no one at the end of verse 13. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. And you might make special reference to those two two verbs there, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, verse 16, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth 
by the word of his truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, this, last, this whole last, last paragraph is driven by God's actions. All right, verses 13 through 16, James specifically points out what God does not do. Verses 17 and 18 point out what God does do, what he does. God specifically does not tempt us. What he specifically does do is he gives us good gifts. He gives us the word of truth. Uh, The difficulty in this text is how closely it's related to what we read in verses two through four at the beginning of James one. Because the word for tempt in these verses at the end where we've just read is the same word for test. It's the same root word. We would call it a cognate in the Greek. Kind of makes us think, what is the difference between testing and tempting? Uh, Most translations translate tempt here at the end of James 1 to show that it is different from testing at the beginning. Testing of our faith does come from God, while tempting for sin doesn't come from God. You say, wait a second, how can God both give trials as a test of faith and, and still be associated, this word, with the temptations? The temptations, we know, specifically don't come from God from this context. And the answer, I think, is that there's two different types of trials, even tests, as you might read them in this text. Number one, there's a trial in terms of testing, which leads to perseverance. Read about that at the beginning of the chapter. Number two, there's trials in terms of tempting. Tempting leads to sin and death. The difference between those two things, I think, is captured by Doug Moo. He's a commentator. Uh, Doug Moo says this, the difference between those two is the attitude with which you meet the trial. The difference between testing of the faith and tempting toward sin is your attitude and how you face the trial. And so everyone is going to fail when they blame God. Everybody is going to pass the test when they refuse to blame God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, is a, is a good reminder for us before we explore this. And Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will, always, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, what James is, is talking about here in these verses is being tempted by evil and by sin. And he gives a a life cycle of sin. He spells out, what does it look like when we sin? Most of us, when we struggle with sin, we think we can get as close as we can to it without fully crossing the line, right? James is telling us, don't get as close as you can to sin and think that you're safe. The closer you get, the more danger you are in. But there's a cycle to sin. There's a way that it starts. It begins in verse 14 with these two metaphors. Each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Now, there's, those are two metaphors that are coming from the, the world of outdoors. First is a fishing metaphor, and second is a hunting metaphor. Most of your translations will say lured as this first sin. More some of the translations say dragged away. Sin will literally tug you like a fishing net. Like a person puts a, a net full of fish into their boat. Sin and evil is tugging at your heart. It's tugging at your desires. The second metaphor is a hunting illustration, enticed. It's the idea of uh, a decoy. If a hunter in a field puts a decoy out to attract its prey. The kicker of course, to all of this is, is the end of verse 14. James is leveling the playing field here. Each person who is tempted is lured and enticed by what? By your own desires. That means that you're tempted by what's inside of you, not what's outside of you. The problem is from within. Remember Jesus in the gospel says something really similar to this. It says it's 
The sin, the place of sin starts from within. It's not what's outside of you that defiles a person, it's what's inside that defiles a person. Covetousness and murder and hatred, envy, evil thoughts. This is the path towards sin. It's the life cycle of sin. Let me offer some very gentle pastoral thoughts here. Every temptation that you'll experience is specifically tailored to you, to yourself. Temptations are specific to the individual. We must never belittle or look down at somebody because they are tempted in a way that we're not. No matter how big the temptation, no matter how little the temptation you think it might be, for another person that might be an incredibly hard temptation to overcome. As Christians, we need to be sympathetic toward that. Understand it, ask questions, listen, and be there. We must never belittle or look down on someone for something that we're not tempted with. The second thing I wanna talk about comes from Craig Blomberg. He's got a, a great commentary on the book of James. He says, we must flee temptation regardless of how little it might seem to us. Flee temptation regardless of how little it might seem to us. Even seemingly little decisions can lead to big and major repercussions in the Christian walk. So, so here's the life cycle of sin, okay? Sin starts with temptation. It leads to desire. Desire gives birth to sin. Sin eventually leads to death. Bob Lapine says it this way, at the root of all sin is a preoccupation for self. At the root of all sin is a preoccupation for self. James tells us that sin is rooted in self and it is deceptive in nature. It is tempting to all of us, to the individual, from within, not from without. One thing we cannot be deceived about in this text, sin is deceiving, temptation is deceiving, but there's one thing that we cannot be deceived about, and that is this, God is good. God is the ultimate giver of good things, and that will never change. Look down at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, it's from God. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. God is good. And the ultimate example of his good giving to us is that he has given us words of truth. He has given us his son, Jesus, who is the word of God. James calls God Father. This is not the only time in the book of James that we're gonna read about God as Father. In fact, there's three times that James mentions God as Father. Here is the only time that he'll call him the Father of lights. And certainly this beckons us back to Genesis chapter one, the one who has created lights, the stars, the moon, and the sun, and the heavens above. James is gonna, is gonna stretch this metaphor, calling God the father of lights here. And he does so by continuing, and he says there is no variation in him, and there is no shifting of shadow with God. Now that's exactly what happens with the stars, the sun, and the moon in the sky, right? The moon is always changing. It's waxing and it's waning. The sun seemingly is always rising, it is always setting. At dark, the stars come out, sometimes they're brighter, sometimes they're not as bright, they're changing, there's variations in the stars above every way. With God, nothing changes. God is constant. He is always the same, he is always good. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for that, of course, we can say amen. But let me talk about just two ways that we can apply this text in James 1. Authentic Christianity. You wanna be an authentic Christian? Get over yourself. God is in a process of emptying you, he is in a process of emptying me, of everything in me that looks like me and doesn't look like Jesus. And so here's how he's gonna do that. 
He's going to give me trial after trial after trial until I stop depending on my own strength. He's going to put me in a situation where I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, and I don't have the knowledge I need until I start asking him for wisdom on a regular basis, until I seek that wisdom on a regular basis. And then here's what he's also going to do. He's going to throw desires and temptations into my life because that's what Satan and evil does. He's going to allow Satan to tempt me in ways that I don't want to be tempted until finally I learn to trust and depend upon him more than I trust or depend or hope in anything else in this world. You want to be an authentic Christian? This is the process. This is what it looks like to be an authentic Christian. It is painful, it is grueling, and it is hard. Authentic Christianity is a path you choose more than a point you reach. Authentic Christianity is a path you choose more than a point you reach. Don't be surprised as a Christian if you are in for a rough time. That is the Christian walk. Paul calls it a struggle. He says, fight the good fight, because fighting sin is a daily occurrence for an authentic Christian. Agonize the good agony. It is going to be agonizing for you to fight in the Christian life if you are an authentic Christian. Many of us uh, trust Christ, and in a short amount of time, we make changes into our life. We, perhaps we join a church. We surround ourselves with other believers. Maybe we jo join a Bible study in the process of of being a Christian. Maybe we approach our family life differently, make changes there. Then 10 and 20 years into the Christian life, we find ourselves still struggling against sin, don't we? 15, 20, 30 years. Ask around in this room, do you still struggle with sin? Older guys in this room? The struggle is real. The Christian life is a process. And here's what God promises to do. He promises to make us perfect through the process. That process will last you for the rest of your life. And at the end of it, maybe at the end, maybe you look a little bit like Jesus. But there's so much sin nature in us. There's so many habits and things that we have learned apart from Christ that the only thing that will absolutely annihilate that forever is if he kills all the flesh that is in us with our earthly death. And earthly death actually becomes a great hope for everlasting life to what God has created us ultimately to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. There is so much sin rooted in us still, even as believers, that it's going to take our death to get rid of it. And even in that, there's a great hope. There's a great promise. One day we will look like Jesus. One day we will become what he created us to be. Christian life is a process. God has promised to make us perfect. That long process will last. The longer you live with the Lord, the more sin you see in you, the more stuff you see that needs to come out on a normal basis. Because what? You're looking at the law of God as a mirror, and it's reflecting back at you. Man, I need to give this aspect of my life to Christ. I can't believe I didn't see that there before. Lord, help me. I confess, I repent that this does not look like you. Help me to get rid of it so I can look more like you to this lost and to this fallen world. George MacDonald gave an excellent illustration of a house as a Christian. He says, you know, God didn't design us to be a a small little one-bedroom apartment. Right? He created us to be a mansion. And when he does that, he's not going to just fix the plumbing here and, and rewire the electrical there. He's going to take who we are, and he's going to knock out a wing. He's going to build a whole other structure. We're going to look so different tomorrow than we do today because God is in this process of building something beautiful. And we thought we were in for just some kind of cosmetic little makeover. 
when we trusted Christ. He is making you into a completely different person altogether. And that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of hard work and a lot of faith in what God is doing to us and through us. Number two, be busy about killing sin or sin will be busy about killing you. Be busy about killing sin or sin will be busy about killing you. Now, what you saw in James was a life cycle of sin. We saw temptation, we saw desire, we saw sin, and we saw death. Paul Tripp and uh, Ken Sandy and Peacemakers both expand that a little bit. I've shared this with you before, but it's worth repeating. In the life cycle of sin, there are certain things that progress from one stage to another. All sin starts with desire. And listen, God created desire. He created as good. He gave us a desire. He gave us godly desires. Desires aren't bad in and of themselves. Desires become bad when we center them and focus them on something that God didn't design for those desires. Or when those desires are loved to an extent that they are loved more than God. So here's how sin starts. Sin starts with desire, and the problem with desire is how quickly it morphs into demand. Paul Tripp says, when we move from desire to demand, demand is closing the fist around our desires. All right? If desire was, I want, demand is, I must have this. And when you make a demand for something that God doesn't want you to have, you are closing your fist around that sin, around that desire. The most devastating step in the cycle of sin, however, is when demand becomes need. Demand, I want, becomes I need this. Need inevitably leads to expectation. I want this, I need this, I expect you, Brian, to give it to me. I expect you, Mark, to give it to me. And guess what? When you don't do what I want you to do, what's going to happen then? I'm going to get really upset. I'm going to punish you. I'm actually just going to, I'm not even going to call you anymore. I'm just going to step away from our relationship altogether. Why? Because you didn't give me what I wanted. So I'm not going to do that. After that, when you don't give me what I want and I punish, then relationships just become all kinds of chaotic. Nothing peaceful is happening. There's no unity. There's no fellowship. There's actually punishment in that context. Desire becomes demand. Demand becomes need. Need becomes expectation. Expectation becomes punishment and disappointment. Our heart after that stage. This life cycle of sin that James presents, that life cycle that I just pre presented to you, that is how your heart becomes captured in sin. When that happens, you are full-fledged in it. The point in knowing this, the reason why James is telling this in chapter one, these steps, the reason why I'm even fleshing that out to another extent, is to notice where you are in that cycle. Where are you in the steps? Stop. Confess it to God. Ask him for help. God, I repent of this in my life. Please restore me to the fellowship that I once had with you. Take the sin away from you. I confess that it is wrong. I repent of it, and I'm asking you now to restore me to fellowship and help me make the changes I need to make so it doesn't happen again. Be busy about killing sin or I promise you, the enticing, the luring, the, the desires will consume you. They will kill you and they will lead to death. Authentic Christianity, any takers? Thank you, Breedens, I'm with you. At the end of the day, as a Christian, here's the deal. I don't care about if people see me. I don't want them to see me. 
I want them to see Christ. Because when I'm long gone, the things that remain are the things that are eternal, and the things that are eternal that are most important are God, his word, and the souls of men. Not me. If you sign up for this thing called authentic Christianity, here's what you're signing up for. A long, painful, and arduous process of emptying yourself of everything that's in yourself so that you can be filled with Christ and everything that's in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we boldly and courageously ask that you would give us a desire to be emptied. God, I pray that uh, the things that we have in our hearts and in our lives, the things that point us to ourselves, our strength, our wisdom, our desires, our abilities, you'll crush those things, you'll break them. Lord, help us to get out of, a, out of the way so that we can see Jesus. Help us to put ourselves to the side, completely to the side, so we can look more like Jesus. God, we ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts of emptying us. We ask for it. We hope that you would give us the, the patience, the endurance the perseverance that all of us need for this process. Lord, surround us with a good Christian community that will enable us to do this process with one another. Lord, help TBC to be full of authentic Christians who are all together in the process of being emptied and putting ourselves to the side so that we might see more and more of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.